Thank you so much, Brother Shahe. That was an excellent presentation um, on, a, on a topic that is should be of great interest to us all. And, uh, but a topic I think we've, we've talked about and tried to emphasize um, as much as we possibly can in our brotherhood. Um, sometimes we don't always do it as clearly even as you did tonight. So again, very, very appreciative of that. Thank you. Open it up to questions and comments at this time. If you're a brother in the church, please raise your hand, Brother Josiah will bring you the Thank you, Shai. Uh, a couple questions. Now, you mentioned in the beginning of when we were talking about that the text says hair, uh, head coverings, but then you talked about, you know, Paul was a Jew, so he would have been, it would have been unusual for a Jew. So I, I think I can uh, relate to that. But so my question is, my first question is, also being a Jew, he was familiar with women shaving their heads for the Nazarite vow and also mourning. So if you could offer some thoughts on that. But then my second question is this. Uh, so in the text of 1 Corinthians 11, there is a contrast between man and woman. You know, in the beginning it says, if a man uh, does such and such, it's a shame. But if a woman does such and such, it's an honor. And he says the same thing later when he says if a woman uh, lets her hair grow long, it's a glory, but if a man does it, it's a shame. So there seems to be a contrast. But, so if, if, if the cutting of the hair is what is in view, so for the woman to cut her hair and still maintain long hair, she thus no longer has what it says is the glory. But if a man were to grow his hair, say, down to his ankles and cut it an inch, uh, would that not be the contrast that it's making. In other words, if it's about cutting only, not length. So wouldn't it be true that a man who has, you know, knee-length hair who just cuts it an inch, seemingly would be, a, you know, in harmony with the text. So those are my questions. Okay, so I'll try that second one first, and then the first one second. Uh, in verses, actually, let me pull this up here so that we're all looking at the same thing. Here's, here's our passage here. This is the ESV that I've got uh, pulled up. And I was reading out of several translations. Um, most of the time, as I was reading through this section, I was actually using the NIV tonight. And just as a general plug, the NIV in, is quite good in 1 Corinthians in general. Uh, and in, I think particularly good in this, in this particular passage. So the way that I've heard this explained, uh, AK, and I think this is reasonable, is that uh, here in verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every now the ESV here has wife. I'm not sure about that. Uh, I would probably take issue with that. Who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, meaning of these verbs is just having down from the head or not having down from the head, essentially. Something on the head, something not on the head. And we have a further explanation in the latter verses of exactly what Paul has in mind for women. And that is that the, the long hair, the hair that's allowed to continue to grow. But there's not really a further elaboration for the man in those verses. And so I would re return back to these verses and say that if we're gonna give a definition of short hair, which honestly I'm 
apprehensive to do because I don't see it as thoroughly explained as the long hair of a woman. But if we were going to give a general definition of having his head uncovered, I guess you could say hair that doesn't hang down from his head. Now that's extremely vague for me and I've always struggled with that definition. I don't know of a better one um, that is in this text itself. Maybe one of the other guys has a comment about that. And so that's how I've heard it explained before, hair that's not so long that it's down the head. But that's pretty vague, you know. So I think that uh, for men, the key is to look to nature and to ensure that the gender distinctiveness between them, I mean, obviously, as you described, if a man had long hair that we would think of as being down his back and just trimmed it, we wouldn't see much of a distinction between that and the way most women would be wearing their hair if they were keeping their hair long. So you lose the um, nature contrast. And so that's kind of my general answer about that. Now on the Nazarite vow and the head shave for mourning, um, the, the priests were commanded by God to wear the turbans when they ministered in the sanctuary. And the Nazarite vow, it's interesting, the Nazarite vow, if you look at all the different stipulations for the Nazarite vow, the Nazarite vow seems to be this thing that God gave to the Israelites who were not able to be priests because they were not Levites, that allowed them to live kind of like the priests live. You know, the high priest wasn't supposed to touch a dead body, wasn't supposed to drink any, anything that came from the vine. There were all these stipulations that were given to the priests. And the Nazarite vow seems to be this sort of special thing where God says to non-Levites, hey, you can make a special dedication to the Lord for a time, just like the priests have made. And you get to be kind of like a priest, though you don't get to work in the sanctuary for a period of time. And the shaving of the head that comes at the conclusion of the vow uh, doesn't seem to be a reflection of anything that Paul is discussing here. Rather, the shaving of the head that comes at the conclusion of the vow is just the token that the vow has ended. Now, you're right in that the Nazarite vow is a suspension of this whole chapter. So Paul, under the old system, probably could not teach this in this way because the Nazarite vow is a suspension of the natural way of doing things. But I think it's a unique suspension for a special purpose that was not normative among the children of Israel. That would be my answer about the Nazarite vow. Maybe somebody else has a better answer about how we square the Nazarite vow with, with this text. Brother Sean Willis and then Brother Alan Bonfett. Appreciate it. I, I was actually reading from the ESV and you kind of segued into it. So could you say a word about uh, that term for man and woman or husband and wife and share your thoughts on that page? Yeah, you'll notice here that uh, it actually gives us the, the reason, the justification in the ESV as to why it goes with wife. The Greek word gune is translated in some passages as wife, and so they've decided to go with that here. If you're going to translate this as wife, uh, it seems the ESV has been inconsistent here in translating in verse 4, uh, man, <laughs> and not husband. But the reality is that uh, Arne, I think Arne is the word for husband here. Actually, it's right here. There it is, Arne. 
Uh, or, all right, uh, but uh, I'm having trouble here. Bart. On air, on air, excuse me. I was mixing up my, my Greek and English letters for a minute. Uh, on air can be husband, but it's very rare. Very, very rare. There are other words for husband that are more clear. And so that's why the traditional way of rendering this is to match gune, wife, woman, with man. And so contextually, I think the ESV has made a poor decision here. If you're going to go with man in verse 4, you've got to go with woman in verse 5, right? And so that's why I think the ESV has made a, made a poor decision on this rendering of Gunet. You have this trouble in other passages like 1 Timothy, where is, is, it, is it the wives of the deacon or is it women in general? Right. This is one of those difficult passages where some will debate about uh, how Gune should be translated. But I think the ESV has shown its own inconsistency in having man and wife instead of husband and wife or man and woman. Thank you. Alan two for two. Uh, just a couple. Of, well, I don't want you to fall over. These are just questions. Sure. I'm okay. I'm, I'm well, keeping steady. <laughs> uh, so, in, in uh, verse 4, you said at the very first, I thought you said at the first you were talking about it. I may be wrong, but I thought you said that this is a reference to prophesying like a spiritual gift prophesying. Yeah, I think it is. Okay. Then later in your chart with three reasons for verse 10, yeah. I thought maybe the word prophesy was being used in a different way there, as in, as uh, in teach maybe. I didn't intend for that. I, I think, you know, we see pray and prophesy, and we recognize that the gift of prophecy was a temporary gift that women in the early church had. Philip had his four daughters who were prophetesses. So there were presumably women who could prophesy at Corinth. And basically, I, I gave, because we're not studying 1 Corinthians 12, I just gave the general definition that when we look at pray and prophesy, we should just think about exercising, in this case, maybe spiritual gifts, but in a more broad post-miraculous age era as exercising the general gifts that God has given us in his service. So if someone said, well, then you're saying this only applied in that time of miracles or, or spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. You would reply, but praying is included. Correct. Okay. Yep. All right, got it. So, on still on verse ten, which is problematic, as you said. Yes, it's a tough one. Uh, is it possible to be uh, fair to the text and? assimilate the two views about angels that is it's just because of the angels whether they're good or evil if they're evil it's because they rebelled against authority mm -hmm. if it's the good angels it's because they're in submission to god glorified sure i wouldn't have a problem with that i think that is probably yeah we can go with a both and i'm good with that yeah Anyway, yeah, that's a that's a fair point. And and even on the other, you know, on the meaning of um, the symbol of authority, what is the symbol of authority? I mean, it might be more than one thing, you know, and I don't have any problem with that when you're dealing with something. When you when you get passages like this one, where this is really the only time in the New Testament, this particular issue is being worked through. There is so much 
that is unspoken between Paul and the Corinthians here because they already knew each other. They knew what the, Paul knew what the needs were. He knew what the Corinthians were still doing and still believing and still practicing. He knew what the problems were that he had learned about from Chloe's people or that he was responding to in the letter they sent. So uh, as it's been said many times, we're on eavesdropping on one side of a telephone call and there are things that are happening behind this text that are difficult for us sometimes to really pull all the way out. And man, verse 10 for me, is one of them. And I just have to imagine that at some point when Paul was in Corinth, he preached a whole sermon explaining what that is. And we don't have that. And so when you get to a verse like that and you say, a symbol of authority on our head because the angels, uh, that's a tough one for sure. And so we just assume that whatever interpretation we provide here for this verse is an interpretation that supports Paul's larger argument and discussion. Another example of this in 1 Corinthians is baptism for the dead in chapter 15. Man, there are about 500 uh, interpretations of what that means. And whatever you conclude, it has to be a, a view that supports Paul's larger presentation about the bodily resurrection that will come in the last day. And I think that's what we have here. I would not be opposed to thinking angels at all. <laughs> um, just a comment I wanted to make. I really appreciated your, your point about that it's not about biology. Um, because I know and have had discussions with uh, women in the past who they may be very self-conscious about the fact that their hair isn't as long as, as someone else's and maybe someone might get the impression that you know, they cut their hair. Uh, we do have sisters that, you know, they sweep the floor about as well as a Roomba when they walk with their hair down. Um, but that's not the case for everyone. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about Samson. He said it, not me. I want to make sure that was noted, okay? <laughs> it's true though. But Samson, um, of course he was uh, supposed to have the Nazarite uh, limitations on him. And of course his hair gets cut. And then there's this tiny little verse it tells us that his hair began to grow again. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if that means, you know, miraculously it shot down to his knees, but I like to think that it's just the fact that he, at that moment, rededicated himself back to whatever that Nazarite now is. So perhaps, uh, again, with what you said, it's not about biology, it's not about an exact length, but about getting back to what God wants us to do and to let it grow, to, uh, to leave it uncut. So, just wanted to say I appreciate that. Any other comments? Uh, AK with a follow-up. Appreciate your response. Uh, I love you, brother, by the way. I'm glad you're here. You Go easy on me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here to be educated, and I do appreciate your response to my first questions. Just to follow up, uh, so when you mentioned the nature thing, yeah. But see, the difficulty seems to be that the nature idea does seem to make it about hair length with both the man and the woman. Because if it's not about hair length at all with the woman, then that breaks the contrast, though, that seems to be going on through the text. So whatever a woman is supposed to do, the man is not supposed to do. So if the woman is supposed to just not cut it, then all a man has to do is cut it, no matter what the length is, and it would be in contrast. And also, 
So what do you think the na nature is there? What do you think the argument from nature is? We talked about this a long time ago, and I can't remember most of our discussion. Yeah, we did. I, I, honestly, I don't know. It's a difficult text. It's yeah. one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, at least, at least I think so. Yeah. Uh, but, so, uh, I don't have all the answers either. I just say there's difficulties that I found with every view a person takes. Yeah. But, so, uh, with whatever I just said there, one other point. Now, when it says about the man in the earlier verses that it's a shame for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered, now that Greek phrase, his head covered, is katakaphale. Right. Now, it's actually found in the Septuagint, the book of Esther, where it says Haman went to his house with katakaphale, his head covered. Now, I think it does mean a head covering there, so I just maybe want to get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, that's true, um, and I wouldn't dispute that that is, is, is a way that that expression could be used. And if all we had was verses 4 and 5a, uh, I would think it'd be an, almost impossible to know. And, and that's basically, you know, something interesting about this passage, and in verses 4 and 5 in, in, in particular. Um, in the early half of the 20th century, if you open up almost any 1 Corinthians commentary, it's, the, it's basically the universal view that uh, a veil is, or an artificial covering, the veil position is what's in view here. In the early, I think it was the early 1980s, a man by the name of Ralph Martin, I think you, I sent you this article a long time ago. He wrote an article in, in like a compendium that was dedicated to the 50th anniversary of F.F. F. Bruce's tenureship as a professor, or something like that. This is what scholars spend all their time doing. And uh, he wrote a, a pretty groundbreaking article on 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. And he made a, a very strong case that long hair is the covering in verses 4 and 5. And his argument was mostly grammatical. And he said that the problem that a lot of the older commentators had is that they assumed they understood ancient Greco-Roman culture and that their historical understanding of ancient Greco-Roman culture lent to the idea that in Corinth, traditionally, women would have worn veils and men would not have worn veils. And basically, uh, Martin's article says, even if that was true, there's no way to support that from the language and the grammar in this passage. And what's interesting is that since Martin wrote that article, there has been a huge shift in the way that commentaries approach this passage. I quoted several scholars tonight who have written commentaries and research articles that have been published in major uh, journals that all take the position that in verses four and five, we have to conclude that the hair, which is not mentioned, of course, until later, although it is implied in verses five and six, is the covering that Paul has in mind because grammatically it's on, the only covering that's ever discussed. And that's been a major shift. Uh, Anthony Thistleton, David knows about Anthony Thistleton's 1 Corinthians commentary. It's about the size of a truck. It's like 700 and something pages. It's you know one of the most comprehensive commentaries written probably in the last 20 years on 1 Corinthians. And he presents both views. He says, here's the traditional view that was held for a long time by scholars of, of a veil. And here's this view that has been advocated by a lot of scholars recently that long hair is the covering in verses four and five. Now, Thistleton basically pulls a Mike Criswell and rides the fence about it. 
and says, you know, I can't decide which one is best. And Mike's not here, so I can say that. Um, but it, that is significant for a man who's writing literally, I mean, one of the most comprehensive First Corinthians commentaries ever written, you know. So I think all we can do is we can say, yes, grammatically, it is possible that katakephala could mean avail. That's true. And sometimes it's used that way in other writings, in other Koine writings. But contextually, it's just hard for me to see how that could be what Paul has in mind based on the other things he says. Final question or comment, whichever one would rather out. Oh, I think we know. <laughs> <laughs> Just two things. I think that in 1 Corinthians 11, the contrast in verse 14 and 15 between the man and the woman, the woman is to have long hair, that is to let the hair grow as long as it'll grow. The man is not to do that. But I think there's a second restriction on the man in verse 4. Yeah. And that's just what the text says. Yeah. And admittedly, it's vague. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. And uh, if you want to read something about that, Richard Bunner wrote a track back in the 70s when uh, men were wearing their hair over their ears and stuff like that, and me too. And uh, anyway, he's got an explanation of that. Another thing he explains, though, in his track, I think this is interesting, is uh, the term for covered in verse 4 there, verse 5, uh, it does not it does not include a veil the word does not include a veil if a veil is included it needs to be in the text or something in the text needs to imply it for example in isaiah 6 above it stood seraphim each one had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet with two he flew that's the same word covered and there the covering are wings. Mm. So the covering needs to be defined in the text that is taught. And here, clearly, as you pointed out in verse 5 and 6, uh, 4 and 5, it's implied that it's hair. Yeah. And then it's specified in verse 15. Right. 15. Thank you for that. Uh, final comments? I do have a few final comments. This might not be, mean anything to anybody, and if it if it doesn't, you know, just ignore it. But over the last I don't know five years or so, I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to become a better Bible student, and specifically trying to rethink uh, through and re-examine a lot of the things that I believed as a young man. A lot of things that I believed were just things that I was taught, and not necessarily those things that I had come to believe on my own. And I've found over the process of trying to do that, there, there have been some things that I have sort of changed my view about, uh, some things that maybe I still hold the same basic view that I used to, but I might have a slightly different way of, of articulating it or arguing it. I feel this way you know, really about even my uh, articulation of the gospel, that I feel like I can do a better job of uh, expressing to people what the good news about Jesus Christ actually is. And as I've gone through that process, there have been two issues that I have found that I believe in more strongly now 
than I ever have before. One of those issues is the use of one loaf and one cup in the Lord's Supper, and the other is what I have presented to you tonight. This generally, the idea of this is what I was taught when I was young. But I have gone through 1 Corinthians 11 now more times than I care to admit. And every time I come away with a stronger conviction about this issue than I did, than I had before. So again, that might not mean anything to anybody. And uh, I would encourage us all to try to be the most diligent and the most open-minded and the most objective Bible students we can be, although I know that is very difficult because we all bring with us our own preferences and our own traditions and the things that we were taught when we were young. But I think that if we will do that and we will commit ourselves to that, we'll find, as I personally have found, a stronger love of God and a stronger devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ than I've ever had at any point uh, before now. So that was just my sort of general closing admonition to everyone and encouragement. I so appreciate, of course, being here. This is still very much a part of my life and my home. And I especially appreciate all the work that our women have done uh, to make us as welcome and as taken care of as we possibly can be need to be uh, more than we deserve to be. We love you so much and appreciate all that you do for the cause of Jesus Christ. Thank you.